Hello, I'm Seth for Privacy, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of Opt Out. Opt Out's a show where I sit down with passionate people to learn why privacy matters to them, the tools and techniques they've found and leveraged, and where we encourage and inspire others towards personal privacy and data sovereignty. In Season 2, we're taking a look at some of the privacy-preserving tools, FOSS projects, and privacy-focused companies in the space to get a better understanding of what they do well, what their limitations are, and what we all can do to help drive their tools forward. Have you been wondering how you can secure and spend your Bitcoin without trusting a centralized wallet or software? This episode, we're going to sit down with Zach Herbert, co-founder and CEO of Foundation Devices, to chat about Foundation and the Passport wallet that they've built out. Welcome on Opt Out, Zach. Thanks for having me. So great to be here. Yeah, I'm uh, super pumped to finally have you on, obviously. We've been talking off and on throughout, and I followed you on, on Twitter for a while, and uh, good good buds with a lot of the people who've kind of come to join you, and uh, just really excited to to learn more about the work that, that you've been doing with Foundation Devices, and uh, I, I love the the really core ethos that you'll have driven home of a, a focus on open source software and hardware, um, and even the commitment that I talked about with Q&A on, on an episode of a little bit back on, on opt out uh, that y'all have made to using FOSS tools internally uh, within your business as well, whenever possible. So I'm um, super excited to chat about that. Um, and for those people who aren't familiar with, with you or with uh, what Foundation Devices is, do you mind just introducing yourself? Yeah, definitely. Um, and thanks again for having me. This is you know, awesome to be here. I've been listening to your pod, uh, I guess, for some time now. And um, yeah, I'm really excited that you have this new season and that you're talking to companies like us. Um, so yeah, so I'm Zach Herbert. Uh, as you said, I'm co-founder and CEO of Foundation Devices. And we're building uh, sovereign hardware uh, is, I think, a good way to define it. You know, we're trying to build tools that allow you as a maybe a normal person, maybe someone who's not necessarily savvy when it comes to command line or Linux or anything like that. And we want to be empower like the normal everyday person with sovereignty. And that's a long journey, of course. Um, and we had to choose somewhere to start. And so we started with a Bitcoin hardware wallet called Passport. Um, and yeah, I'm excited to talk more about that today. Personally, um, you know, I've been in, uh, into Bitcoin for almost a decade now. Um, been working in the Bitcoin or crypto space full time since the beginning of 2017, and um, have just been before that been lurking around the space for a while, and um, you know using a lot of the Bitcoin related tools, uh, you know before hardware wallets even existed, you know using like air gap computers, removing the Wi-Fi card, that kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. really passionate about this entire topic. And um, really fortunate and grateful that we were able to come together in uh, April of 2020, uh, in the beginning of the pandemic, and actually start this company. Must have been a, a crazy time to be kicking things off, but I'm sure, I'm sure you're pretty <laughs> used to crazy times with being in the cryptocurrency scene full time for four years now. It's true. It's true. Yeah, I mean, went through, I guess, uh, multiple bull markets, bear markets, crashes, you know, it doesn't really phase you anymore. Um, definitely was not the best time though, to start a company, if I'm being honest. Um, but you sometimes just got to take that first step. And then once you take that first step and failure is kind of not an option, right? Then, uh, then everything just hopefully uh, ends up working out. Yeah, yeah, seems to have been going really well so far. Um, and I want to—I want, do want to get into Foundation and Passport Wallet yeah. specifically, but I want to take a little bit of a step back and uh, just get to know a little bit more about you and, and hear um, what it was that woke you up to the need for personal privacy. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't care about any of this stuff uh, when I first started getting into Bitcoin. You know, I just wasn't even top of mind. 
I think most people that get really into Bitcoin go through a similar journey. And so apologies if, <laughs> if I'm not really giving any unique insight. Um, but yeah, my journey mirrored the typical, you know, long-term Bitcoiner where you buy some coins on, you know, Coinbase or whatever exchange. Uh, for me, it was Coinbase back in the day and first. And then you start to spend more time on, you know, Reddit was really big back then. And then you're on Twitter and then you're listening to podcasts like, you know, Tales from the Crypt, which has been going for a few years with, with you know, Matt yeah. and Marty. And of course, I know you know, know Matt pretty well. Um, Stefan Levera, you know, other stuff like that. You start to read books, you know, and, and then all of a sudden you, you realize that if you're using this better form of money, that's supposed to be able to give you sovereignty, well, you better store it yourself. And then if you're embracing that idea of personal sovereignty, you know, that doesn't come without freedom. And then that doesn't come without privacy. And so that's really how I fell into it. Um, I didn't care at all. And then as I, you know, have been in the Bitcoin space for a while, all of the sudden privacy becomes really important. Um, and I think that you just get steeped in it, you know, being in the space. You start to you start to uh, see every single privacy violation done by every company, whether that's Amazon, Apple, Google. Uh, you're surrounded by all that kind of content, you know, and you're kind of in that echo chamber, and you really start to care about it, both for yourself and for trying to um, make it, at least for me, trying to make it more accessible for other people. And I think that's a big driver of what what we're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that a lot of people, it seems like have been driven to caring about both privacy and sovereignty through cryptocurrency. I mean, I've talked a little bit about Definitely. how I kind of fell down the, the Bitcoin rabbit hole and then ended up in, in Monero and the, the kind of privacy centric community around Monero. Um, just kind of helped to, I guess, red pill me on the, on the concept of a personal privacy and, and the, the need for sovereignty. And obviously I think in the Bitcoin circles, sovereignty is more of a, a focus um, than privacy, but there is definitely a good core of, of Bitcoiners that are focusing on privacy. But those two things go, go so well hand in hand. And, and like you said, once you kind yeah. of wake up to the issues around money and the issues around control of money um, and what, what something like Bitcoin can do, uh, it really does help you to see the other issues that exist in the world, like uh, the, the constant surveillance state that's, that's growing and surveillance capitalism and um, just a lot of the, the other things that, that kind of do pair with uh, sovereignty issues with, with you being able to control your life and be able to control what happens to you and where you are and how your money works and um, how you're able to save and, and all that fun stuff. Um, so I think a lot of people have kind of come in that way. Exactly. And I, you know, I kind of liked coming in from the Bitcoin standpoint or from, you know, the cryptocurrency standpoint, uh, because there's an element of selfishness and greed to the whole thing, you know, mm -hmm. which is basic human nature, right? You can't fight against that human nature, right? We all have our own, you know, uh, selfish interests at heart. Um, and so if you come in, if you try to get someone excited about privacy from maybe a non-selfish and unselfish angle, um, I don't know, maybe it doesn't have the same amount of like sticking power as opposed to if mm. you come in through one of these, you know, crypto communities, uh, you know, obviously for me, Bitcoin, and all of a sudden you're like, I'm all about the sovereignty thing. But then, you know, what we talk a lot about at Foundation, we say, well, you know, sovereignty is 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 like the umbrella category, but we we do a lot of triangles. I guess like our logo is like a triangle. So we're always messing around with like, pitch decks and stuff and 
I like thinking of it like sovereignty having like three components, you know, like a triangle. You have the freedom, you have the ownership, and you have the privacy. And hmm. without those three, you don't get sovereignty. And so that's kind of how we break it down internally. And so when we look at the products that we're making, or I, I guess I should say the products we're either building or, or that we're using, we're thinking about, you know, does it give uh, our users freedom? Um, or does it give us freedom if we're using these tools? You know, do we have ownership over these tools, whether it's ownership of our money or our data? Um, and are the tools private? And, and I think if you have those three components, you kind of have this like holy trinity of, uh, of sovereignty. Yeah, it's a great pairing. I, I think I hadn't, I hadn't combined sovereignty into that triad yet, I guess. I mean, I, I've definitely seen the connection between privacy and freedom. And I mean, really, ultimately, that's what privacy does is it, it grants you freedom when you're able to choose who you share information with, who you reveal yourself to, um, all of that. But pairing it with sovereignty in that kind of triad and how they all really do work towards each other's benefit. And you, you need all three to really have any of them as a, a um, I think a really, a really good angle. Um, something I hadn't kind of deeply considered that the ties between all three yet. Yeah. And the, the most basic thing on the Bitcoin or crypto side is that, I mean, once you get some, you don't, you don't want anyone else to know how much you have. <laughs> like, yeah. and, and I obviously, I'm, I know you're, you know, you're super cognizant of that. And you could argue that maybe Monero does, you know, a better job than, than Bitcoin with that, you know, especially right now. Um, but I think just in terms of basic principles, as, as soon as you start to achieve that level of sovereignty, that level of ownership and freedom over, you know, your money, let's say, you don't want to disclose that basic information to another party, um, whether that's the government or, you know, a larger corporation or anything like that. And so I just feel like there's this, I don't know, it's like once you're pulled in into this Bitcoin rabbit hole or crypto rabbit hole, I feel like mm -hmm. there's this just gut reaction, you know, where all of a sudden privacy becomes important and maybe you don't realize why, but it's just a core part of this entire thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You you really do start to grasp like why you need privacy is because you want to protect this sovereignty that you found and and this money that you found and this uh, kind mm -hmm. of freedom that you found. So yeah, it's a really good, yeah, really good yeah. connection there. Um, and I think a good uh, a good chance to segue into talking a little mm -hmm. bit more about about foundation and about the passport wallet. Um, so I'd love to hear like what was it that made you specifically want to to start off foundation with the passport wallet? What made that kind of the the place that you felt like was a good start for, uh, for what you wanted to do with foundation devices. Yeah. So I, like I mentioned, uh, in my intro, I've been using Bitcoin for a long time. And, you know, even before there were hardware wallets where I remember using this cool piece of software called Ar Armory, where you could actually, uh, separate out, you know, you could have an air gap laptop that is like the signing device. And you can have the internet connected laptop or computer, you know, that uh, is connected, is also running a full node locally. You could do your signing, you know, on the offline device. So that's, that's what I did, you know, for some number of years. Um, and then all of a sudden there were hardware wallets, right? Trezor came out, Ledger came out and, you know, kind of birthed an entire new category, made it a lot easier for you to manage, um, manage your own Bitcoin self-custody and actually introduce the concept of seed words, which is kind of interesting. Um, I don't think we had that standardized seed word list uh, before those hardware wallets came out. I remember mm -hmm. with Armory, it was like random, like alphanumeric, you know, characters and so on um, as the backups. And so, you know, that was a huge leap in user experience. And I switched over to using that. And, um, 
you know, if I had a friend or family member or something that was interested in not, not like that many people, people were, you know, back in like 2015 or, or 2016. Um, but I would say, you know, you can, you can, you can use a hardware wallet. I actually, um, sold hardware wallets on, uh, this decentralized marketplace called open bazaar. I don't know if you've heard of it or remember it it or. I yeah. think it's shut down now, right? But it, I, I it was think a, it may a have cool approach for a while there. Yeah, I think it shut down last year officially, but I think it was pretty defunct for a few years. And I think the the creators of that were on the wrong side of one of the Bitcoin um, fork wars as well. And so, you know, a lot of drama back in 2016 yeah. and uh, 2017 there. But so anyway, so I was I was actually on there. I had HODL hardware shop, uh, <laughs> and I was buying and selling you know, hardware wallets and I was giving basic customer support and it was kind of fun, you know, being able to do that on a decentralized marketplace where the transactions were performed, you know, just in Bitcoin. And over time, one thing that really surprised me was that these devices were not getting easier to use. It's almost like you had this huge leap from before hardware wallets to after hardware wallets. But I believe like I'm really into just, you know, product design, as you can tell from, you know, what we do as a company. And I think what happens is, uh, especially to the companies that are like the early adopters. I think you could see the same thing with like the MP3 players before the iPod. You kind of end up in an echo chamber where your customers are the ultra early adopters. And so they're not demanding the features that would actually make it easier to use. They end up demanding the more power user features. And then you get stuck in this, this cycle of you're not actually making the device more accessible to like the next level up in terms of users. You know, you're, you're just kind of reinforcing uh, your feature set for the existing users that you have. And so I didn't feel like I had an, anything I could recommend to like friends or family for a hardware wallet. No, nothing that I could have just given them and said, you go get set up. It would have been something where I have to sit there and set it up with you. And that's still largely the case. And we're in 2022 now, <laughs> which is insane, I think. Um, and even just using seed words, I mean, so many phishing attacks, so much loss of funds is due to the fact that you get tricked into entering those words into, you know, like a, like a website or something like that. So that's all going on. At the same time, you know, I started working full-time in the cryptocurrency space in, in 2017. I dropped out of, uh, of business school, um, joined this company in Boston that uh, is building this project called SiaCoin or Sia, which is like decentralized cloud storage yeah. uh, network. Um, they're actually one of the more credible ones in the whole space and still are, which is kind of cool. Unfortunately, there's not that many credible ones in the space. And we did this crazy thing where we crowdfunded and designed and, and manufactured in the USA and shipped over 12,000 units of ASIC miners for SciCoin and for Decred. And we did that between 2017 and 2019. And so I'm a mechanical engineer by training, but all of a sudden I found myself joining the startup and like kind of running a lot of the day-to-day, you know, hardware development operations and everything that would go into running a hardware project. And that was like a huge, you know, crash course for me. And I I never done this, I, you know, did stuff in school, but I never did any of this in the real world. And so, you know, I and some of my team members uh, in towards end of 19, uh, sorry, end of 2019, beginning of 2020, just start talking a lot about, you know, starting, uh, what essentially became foundation devices and launching a hardware wallet um, as our first product that is just, you know, uh, much easier to use uh, than anything that exists on the market today. 
and uh, has a strong uh, foundation on both, you know, being open source hardware and software. And then also we care a lot about um, the made in the USA angle. Um, Cause we just thought like, Hey, you know, we want to design this device for ourselves. Like we don't feel comfortable using this closed source hardware, like a ledger. Uh, and we also don't really want to use something that's made in China. You know, we want to know what's in it. We want to know it's manufactured in a more trustable way. And uh, we want something that's just way easier to use. And so we decided to quit in uh, March of, of 2020 and spin up uh, what became Foundation Devices and officially started that in April. That's awesome. I actually had no idea that that spawned out of um, Saya and, and engineers out of that space. That's, a, that's definitely news to me in the, the history <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely was... agree on the... I was gonna say I was I was ultimately chief operating officer for um, for Nebula Sync, which was the company that did Cyanobelisk, and um, uh, I think that they've changed the name and stuff since then. Um, but you know, it was a really interesting experience, and as you can see, how that would also get me into the privacy angle, right? Of trying to do more of um, decentralized data storage. But I'm I'm much more on the Bitcoin side of things, you know. I'm I've yeah. uh, I I uh, only you know I only own Bitcoin, and so. I just felt, you know, I felt like I was excited to work in the crypto space, especially in a startup in Boston that I thought was like a bunch of really good people, you know, really ethical, no sketchy ICOs or anything like that, you know. Um, but I definitely yearned to work full time in the Bitcoin space. And so really fortunate to have been able to um, to spin up foundation. Yeah, and I I just I definitely agree on the angle of hardware wallets and, and general user experience in cryptocurrency, and I guess especially around Bitcoin, um, just seeming to stagnate. I mean, I I've been using a or had been using a ledger for quite a while, I think since 2018, and the the experience around that hasn't really changed at all. Um, at least not the the core experience there. It's been little touch ups on the the wallet software, and some wallets have added support for it and that kind of thing, but. I think there's definitely a, a lot of room for improvement in the the user experience of of what it's like for someone to to secure their Bitcoin and and use it. Um, so I, I'd love to hear like hear a little bit more about what it is that you hope users get from using a passport wallet that they haven't been able to get um, outside of that before now. Yeah, for sure. And um, I, th I think Ledger is a good example. Of course, I think um, what I like to say is that like trying to even just trying to teach someone to enter a pin with just two buttons, you know, like an eight digit pin and how many times have you wiped a ledger or something by getting the pin <laughs> wrong three times. And it's just, so there's, there's a couple of things, right? So one is just this general frustration of user experience. We want to fix that. And so we designed passport specifically so that it would be familiar to you so that you go and you're picking it up and you already know how to physically use the device. You already know how to navigate on the device. You know how to <laughs> select, you know, items on the menu. And while that might seem like extremely low hanging fruit, I, I unfortunately <laughs> think that it's not. And it's just something really important from a industrial design perspective and from like a user interface perspective. And so we actually intentionally made passport kind of look like a old school, you know, mobile phone, uh, because we wanted that element of familiar familiarity, but also maybe even like a tinge of nostalgia. If you're giving this to like your mom or someone, right, to to use the idea that like, oh yeah, I know how to use that. That's what we want, right? So so that's a huge aspect of of passport. Um, and another thing is that, and and this is another way we really differentiate from like Trezor or Ledger, 
Um, you know, Passport today uh, does not ship with its own companion software. What that means is that you use Passport by connecting it to your preferred Bitcoin wallet of choice, whether that's like Blue Wallet is a good example on mobile um, or Sparrow or Spectre on desktop. So we're kind of designing Passport to be like a, like a hardware platform where you can actually connect it to one or multiple different software wallets and maybe even services you know, in the future. And has more of like a horizontal integration. And so that means that we're really interested in full compatibility with the ecosystem of companies and projects, wallet projects in the space. And that has a huge, I think, um, it, it ends up allowing us to create like a different kind of product where like a ledger or Trezor is specifically designed to use with their suite of software only. And yes, it works with other things as well, but it never seems to work like as well, or there's bugs or there's other issues or like a firmware update, like break support for a specific wallet, you know, or that kind of thing. Um, and so that's, that's uh, another big aspect of what we're doing. And overall, we just want to make it as easy as possible to have sovereignty, you know, over your Bitcoin. And we want to make it easy enough. And I don't think we're there yet, but I think we will be with what we're shipping uh, in late February or or early March. want to make it so easy that you can actually give this to someone who's into Bitcoin and they can set it up for themselves and feel secure and feel like that they they did it the right way. And I don't think anyone has yet been able to achieve that um, in the industry. Yeah, that is a a very high bar to set in the cryptocurrency industry. (laughs) And I I feel like much less the the hardware wallet industry because I, I do I really love the the physical approach that y'all have taken with foundation just to kind of take away one more barrier to entry which is with other hardware wallets often learning like you mentioned learning the whole user interface learning the buttons learning how you select things how you don't select things how to yep. just do all of the things that you basically need to do to navigate the device and then on top of that you're having to learn okay how do I store this seed separately and then how do I use this with mm-hmm. the wallet that I prefer and all of those details add up. So taking away just the initial physical barrier to entry, like everyone knows how to use an old T9 phone, or I guess everyone does now. <laughs> like I said, that, that user group is becoming smaller and smaller, but it's a still a familiar user interface for, for everyone. Um, exactly. And but we actually, yeah. I was going to say, we actually, um, even things like seed words, you know, so we, we hide um, the seed words in the advanced settings. And when you go through the setup process, we actually give you a micro SD card. Um, and we walk you through doing an encrypted backup directly onto the micro SD card as part of the initial Mm. onboarding flow. So you have like a, essentially a password that's, um, six words, and then you have the micro SD card that's encrypted. And so even if you lose one of those, you know, uh, or I should say even better, even more importantly, if someone discovers one of those, you don't have any kind of catastrophic, like loss of funds. I don't think that's a perfect solution, but I think for like a totally new user, it's actually better than having them write down the seed because too often um, people just write down that seed without knowing what it means or represents. So then they get into trouble down the line. So we've been, you know, kind of pushing the boundaries a little bit with the default onboarding flows and keeping in mind that, you know, we want our audience to be. I mean, we have amazing advanced user features, but we also want the product out of the box to cater towards more of an everyday user that might not be familiar with something like a seed. Um, 
And we are, I can actually say it here, I'll, I'll do a little fun announcement, um, but I'm not going to give too many details, but we are mm-hmm. actually shipping a mobile app with our batch two device um, to serve as a mobile companion app to Passport. Does not mean that, you know, uh, it, you don't get stuck in our ecosystem, but we've noticed that the onboarding right now is more difficult when you have to kind of go onto our website, you have to go back and forth from our website to like the screen of your device. So we think it'll be a little bit easier to keep things in sync um, when you have a mobile app where you can kind of be holding the phone, holding your passport and going through a really quick and streamlined setup process, firmware update process and so on. And so uh, we're gonna release more details about that probably in mid February. That's exciting. Does that uh, does that require your phone to have an SD card reader, or is that not part of the the connection between the devices and that the mobile app? So the mobile app can do most things over QR, but you hit the nail on the head right away. Where like you do need SD specifically for firmware updates because the file sizes are just too big. Uh, mm-hmm. So we are shipping um, SD adapters for USB C and Lightning uh, with oh. the Batch Two device. Yeah, nice. We're so already, that'll be uh, fun. <laughs> Yeah, I'm excited for that. My team, I, I have to be careful when I'm on podcasts because I always just want to like disclose everything, you know, and then my team gets, <laughs> gets really mad at me. <laughs> that's good. You're, you're actually excited about the things that you're building. You, you want oh, to course. talk about them. That's a, well, it's always a positive. And as a side note, I mean, it, it helps a lot when you're building for yourself. Um, helps enormously to get excited about what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Not just building for a, a market niche that you see that you can kind of jump in on but you've you've seen the need you've run into the issues that you're solving like you want yeah. a good bitcoin hardware wallet so it's it's definitely something that's a lot more personal than just solving some other need that you don't really care about because you know you can you can make money from it so exactly it's um, a, a core piece and I, I think that's what makes a, a a good entrepreneur someone who really does see the need and wants to do the thing for themselves and then sees that they can also sell that thing and benefit other people along the way um so always, always a good thing there for sure um, and I'd love to also hear if there are any kind of limitations that users should be aware of um, while using the passport. You mentioned that that y'all don't ship wallet software yourself, which um, I think is a really interesting a big approach. One. And, yeah, yeah, I mean that's it is a limitation, but it also frees <laughs> y'all up to really focus on the the hardware wallet and then focus on making the hardware wallet work with as many things as possible. I, I love that you hit that like you you hit on that already that it makes your focus more on compatibility with a broader like swath of the ecosystem rather than just focusing on your specific wallet and forcing everybody into your ecosystem. Um, so are there, are there any other limitations or anything more you wanted to say on, on that specific topic? Yeah, I think, um, so I think there's a couple things. One is I totally forgot to mention as well to, to the listeners that um, two other things that are different about Passport, right, is one that we have a camera and do camera and QR codes. Um, I know we alluded to it when we were talking about, you know, the app and, and firmware updates and so on, but um makes it much easier to use Passport with mobile apps. Um, yeah. And, but it also means Passport is air-gapped, and meaning that we have an SD, a micro SD slot, and we have a camera, and we have a screen, but we don't have any USB port. We don't have any USB data. We don't have any, any USB anything. So that is actually, it's, it's both an advantage and a limitation, right, depending on what you want to do and depending on how much you value, you know, that, that, those trade-offs be- between security and convenience. And so... A lot of users really like the air gap because um, it means that you're not plugging in with USB. There have been hardware wallet vulnerabilities that have um, been uh, caused by the addition of USB. 
Um, nothing, I think, too significant, but just the philosophy of kind of removing attack surface, you know, uh, just making sure that like, hey, no one's going to be able to communicate with this device. Um, you know, there's nothing to plug in or anything like that. Uh, so that's that's the security advantage. It's also a huge advantage, I think, when you're using Passport with a mobile app, because historically hardware wallets have not worked well with phones. Yeah. Um, and the QR codes is actually a pretty magical experience. The downside of that, though, is that you don't have that USB port. Uh, you don't have the ability to do transactions over something like Bluetooth either. And so if you're doing you know, quick transactions, the QR codes work well. But if you, let's say you have like some giant multi-sig transaction, there might be a decent number of, of QR codes to scan. And then also the firmware updates are too large to fit over the QR codes. Then you got to pull out the SD card slot. So I think that's like a... That's a key limitation in general with like this category of air-gapped hardware wallet. Um, there's a couple other companies that that make you know an air-gapped hardware wallet like this. Um, I like to think that you know we are the only one that's that's open source and um, which I think is true. And I think we're the most reputable, most usable, um, you know, best design. But it's just a trade-off with the category. And so um, you know we're we're looking at you know. Do we do a future product that has some of those trade-offs? Do we do a future product that has Bluetooth or USB in it and so on? Um, if we do, it would be a different product. It would not be you know, this same product. Um, so that's one of the big trade-offs. Uh, the other one is just we've had a bunch of great customer feedback after shipping our first 1,000 devices. So we shipped you know, 1,000 Founders Edition devices, um, finished shipping those towards the end of last year. You know, we're doing a new batch now with a new updated industrial design where we're able to actually address a lot of the customer feedback that we, that we received. So one is that we did uh, AAA batteries, which are awesome because they're user removable and they're really easy to just pop new ones in. And then the device works standalone, right? You don't have to plug it in. It's like its own little, you know, computer basically, right? That you just pick up and use. You don't have to plug it in or anything like that. But AAA yeah. batteries are just total, total pain. <laughs> uh, the different capacities, different types. It only really works well if you use lithium ones. So that was just something that our customers told us is like, hey, the battery situation, you know, the, the battery life indicator isn't the most accurate it can be. Or like you use the cheaper AAAs and they don't last very long and so on. And so we've addressed that for, um, for batch two, where we are using a, a rechargeable a lithium battery. It's still user removable, user replaceable, standard form factor, but we can give that much better battery life um, and a really accurate battery life indicator. So we've addressed that one. Then the other big thing is, is the, um, uh, I think, I don't know, just, it's a personal thing. I thought I, with the triple A's things, the, the device is like a little thick. I think it's awesome. It feels great in the hand. It has a nice weight to it. But we have been able to slim it down a lot um, uh, with the uh, batch two device that's coming, and so really, really excited to get the website updated uh, for next month and and you know release all the details and images and everything of that because it, it looks pretty awesome. That's a lot of a lot of big changes, and that's a pretty quick iteration process. Um, it's cool to hear that you've been very actively listening to people who are, are using it and those oh, yeah. people who jumped in early on to get those first thousand. And that's awesome that you've sold a thousand already. Um, yeah, it's pretty crazy. We, we can get really granular. I mean, we don't need to, but like, yeah, we're extremely responsive to customer feedback. And when we started the company, we did have to work with an outsourced like industrial design firm because there were only four founders. Now there's a dozen of us total. And um, we have our own in-house industrial design. And we've always had our own in-house electrical engineering 
which means we can move like really fast. And so what I've noticed from like a lot of hardware startups is they launch their product and they don't touch it for like three years or something. And oftentimes that's because either they, they don't want to have to like pay for the tooling costs again, because there's all these upfront costs, you know, when making hardware, like the tooling for production for plastic, for metal and so on, or they just don't want to have to, or, or I actually should say, or they're commonly outsourcing the design to another firm because, you know, it, it allows you to be leaner as a startup, focus more on like the software side of things. Now that everything's in-house, we can just move at this like insane speed. So expect to see other products from us too fairly soon um, because we are just able to do that. And, you know, like a great example too with this between designs, we had some customers saying like, hey, sometimes I insert the micro SD card backwards, you know, because the slot we chose doesn't have a great way to tell you if you're like putting it in the wrong way, like you don't feel it immediately. So we switch, you know, we switch slots to something that people are going to like better. So those are the kinds of things we're constantly looking at, like every single aspect of the device, taking all that customer feedback into account. And we're going to be able to even make iterations between batches of the same product, which is really cool. And then also cut costs off of it. I should, I should have said, like, I think one of the biggest limitations just of our first, our first device, the Passport Founders Edition, was that we sold it for $299 uh, US dollars. Um, that's a pretty good amount of money. Um, and we had to do that because, uh, our costs were, you know, pretty high, you know, we made it in the USA. We did more premium materials, uh, much faster processor than what you'd see in any of the other hardware wallets in the market and so on. But we shaved like a ton of money off the cost by doing a quick redesign between uh, batch one and batch two. And so <laughs> we are pre-selling it at one ninety nine, and it'll probably end up retailing wow. for around two twenty nine. Uh, so we have like a special price, but yeah, that's, that's a big, you know, big, uh, cost savings. And so we're the kind of company that if we do that, you know, we're going to pass that on to our customers because we want to, you know, be able to make it more affordable and, uh, ultimately, you know, sell more devices. Yeah. That's a, wow. That's a huge price cut for the, the second batch. <laughs> uh, that's exciting. That yeah, you're yeah. Able to get that down and just kind of moves it into a lower category. That's much more approachable for people. So super important there. Let's take a quick break from this episode to chat about the sponsors of OptOut, CakeWallet, and Local Monero. CakeWallet is a key tool that I use daily, as it allows me to easily and quickly use Monero for private by default payments. It's available on both iOS and Android, and is a fantastic way to get started buying and using Monero with a simple and easy to understand user experience. I regularly onboard new users to CakeWallet and hope that it will help simplify and ease your journey into cryptocurrency. If you're interested in purchasing Monero for the first time, or helping to bring others into a parallel economy. I'd recommend you look at using local Monero, like I do, to buy and sell Monero while maintaining your privacy and avoiding invasive exchange surveillance. Local Monero is entirely peer-to-peer and is an important part of opting out of the surveillance state and into a parallel economy. Thank you to both sponsors for their incredible support and partnership, and I hope you'll take a moment after the episode to learn more in the show notes or at optoutpod.com sponsors. I'm really curious. So I haven't used the passport myself. Um, I know a lot of people who do, and I, I definitely want to to grab one. I mean, actually, actually have to pre-order one from this upcoming batch. Um, but I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on like what are the practical use cases for the passport? Like, is it is it more focused on the people who are kind of like just holding funds, caring about long-term security, 
or is it something that people who are spending Bitcoin frequently could use for for spending? Is it is it more focused on one of those, or, or does it really work for kind of both of the core use cases, or really any other use cases that jump to mind for for the passport and its specific approach to to user experience? Yeah, um, I think it it really works for any category of storing Bitcoin, and it's pretty simple in that regard. There's no other features, you know, right now. It's just to store your Bitcoin. Um, mm-hmm. What I would say is it works particularly well, I think, in two use cases. One is if you're in a, if you're uh, connecting with a mobile app like Blue Wallet, or even now we have a, a new integration that just went live in our latest firmware from a couple weeks ago, a simple Bitcoin wallet on Android. So now we have two mobile wallets that work really well with Passport. And so that's what like, was that? I, I think it's called Simple Bitcoin Wallet. Oh, okay. Um, and they've been around for a long time is my understanding. Um, so that it's just like a completely different user experience when you're using your hardware wallet connected to your phone. Uh, you know, the keys are obviously being stored on passport, but you're able to do transactions really quickly with a couple QR code scans. And that's just like, you know, totally different transformative experience makes it much faster to actually spend from your hardware wallet. So it could work pretty well in a case where you want to be keeping your funds in cold storage, but spending more frequently. Then the other thing I think we really excel in is multi-sig. Ledger and Trezor don't work that well with multi-sig because they're not able to store uh, the multi-sig configurations on device, meaning Mm -hmm. that um, they're not able to take in the public keys and derivation paths of the different signers and remember that which means that they cannot typically cannot verify that a receiving address in your multi-sig configuration actually belongs to your passport. Uh, and that's a huge problem with Bitcoin multi-sig. And there's going to be a lot of, there's a lot, it, it's standardizing. So I think a lot of those problems will go away in the coming years. But for now, if you have a multi-sig setup, you can just import that with a really simple QR code scan into passport and then if you want to receive to your multi-sig, we actually have a cool feature where you can just scan a QR code of your of any receive address and Passport will tell you if it belongs to your multi-sig. And so that's really powerful. Mm-hmm. I think we might be the only ones on the market who do that. And um, actually, I think, I think Spectre DIY might do that and Seed Signer might do that. But like, we love it. It's a great feature. And I think it's really important to note that the older gen hardware wallets, you know, are not really designed for the multi-sig use cases. And so it's just top of mind as we're going about, you know, uh, the, the passport uh, design process and, and the continuous improvements. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that y'all are really, I think, thinking deeply about multi-sig because I think that's one of the features that's obviously it's been around in Bitcoin and most cryptocurrencies for a long, long time. But I don't think it's really been explored to its fullest what, what multi-sig can enable. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that y'all are not just kind of discarding that and making it a very conscious effort to to properly support multi-sig and, and provide that to users. Um, what kind of use cases have you seen people using multi-sig for, um, if you happen to know that? I mean, I think there's some pretty popular models. I've, I've noticed that the two of three uh, multi-sig model is really popular. Um, and there's a t- couple different ways to implement that. Uh, I think one that works really well for users is when there's two keys in the user control and then one key kind of represents like a backup key. So you see this from companies like Casa or or Unchained Capital where they control one of the keys is like where you have to go through like a recovery process. 
like in Casa's, uh, Casa, for example, you have a key on your phone. Um, and then you have, uh, you know, a key on your hardware wallet. And so you can spend, you know, however you want without waiting for approval from someone else. But like, if you lose your hardware wallet or if your hardware wallet breaks, then you can, uh, request the recovery key. I think it's really early. I know Square is actually pursuing something like that, but it could take them Interesting. a year or two to bring bring that product um, to market. And so we're kind of keeping an eye on that. Um, but I think we've barely scratched the surface. I mean, you can use multisig, you know, you can have uh, keys on all your devices and have a pretty complex, you know, multisig setup. Uh, you could have multisig between founders or uh, executives of a company or a fund. You know, I think there's so much you can do, and I think it's going to be one of the most important uh, Bitcoin tools that is really going to push Bitcoin to mass adoption. Because one cool thing about multisig, if you do it well, is that you don't necessarily need to write down the seeds. Because if you have a threshold, like a fault tolerant multisig, where if you, let's say you have like a three of five and you lose two of your devices, it's totally fine because you have the other three. So if we can get to that, we could potentially get to a situation where you don't have to write down, you know, any seeds. You don't have to deal with anything like that. That's what Casa does uh, pretty well today. Yeah, the angle of really enabling, I, I think, kind of a middle ground between, and it's not, it's not custodial, but it's kind it's of like a middle ground in user experience. Collaborative custody yeah. is typically yeah, the term. Yeah, that's a good way yeah. to phrase it. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting angle that that hasn't been explored much past Casa. So I, I do hope more people explore that because I think that can be a, a very, a very interesting and valuable way to enable people to have some more kind of custodial like uses mm-hmm. of Bitcoin without mm-hmm. actually giving spending um, control to the third party that they're actually using. So I, I yeah. definitely am excited to see what companies and, and apps and projects will kind of come up with there um, because I think there's a, a, a lot of potential value in use, utilizing multi-sig to build that, that kind of uh, like, like you said, collaborative custody. That's a really uh, a good yeah. place to, to sum it up there. I think the one trade-off, which is especially applicable to this podcast though, is that all the collaborative custody kind of setups to, to date uh, have huge privacy trade-offs. Yes. Because, in Bitcoin multi-sig world, you know, if, if you have all the different, if you want to be able to sign a multi-sig transaction, you need all the different public keys and derivation paths. If you have all the different public keys and derivation paths, you know exactly, um, you know, every single transaction uh, that's taking place in that wallet, you know, the balance of the wallet and so on. And so you're making a huge trade-off today uh, between uh, the convenience or the security of that, you know, the redundancy of that, and then the privacy of your funds. And so we actually are looking at one potential direction to improve that, not like fix it, but improve mm-hmm. that. And we're going to see if we'll be able to offer something like that to our users um, in the future, but it's it's still pretty early. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I had forgotten about the, the privacy mm-hmm. implications there. And I mean, that would apply even to a, private by default cryptocurrency like Monero. If you're giving up a, a, mm. a multi-sig key and all of the addresses to that third party, they are going to gain visibility into those transactions. So that is definitely right. the big downside to that kind of um, collaborative custody or, or mm. multi-sig where the, the third party is not someone you necessarily trust. 
um, yep, you are going to be giving up, giving up privacy for that. That may be fine in the specific use case or trade-off, um, but mm -hmm. that is definitely something that, that people do need to be aware of. Yeah. So when someone picks up a, a passport for the first time and they start to really just get familiar with it and dive in, what are some of the, the settings or features that listeners should, uh, should take a look at or, or get familiar with when they're starting to use a, a passport wallet? I think there's probably two main things to highlight. I think one is the camera and QR codes, like I've mentioned a couple times. Mm -hmm. um, using it with a wallet like Blue Wallet, which is you know cross-platform on on iOS or, or Android, just a totally different user experience. And so, would highly recommend and encourage that the QR codes. People don't necessarily think of them as like fast, but like they're extremely fast. It's almost like magic compared to having to open up the computer, plug in. And so on. So that's a huge difference and a huge feature that I think really differentiates us. Uh, the other thing that we spent a ton of effort on, which might seem kind of silly or might seem like obvious of a feature, but I'm really proud of, is when you get dropped into the main menu of the device, once you get it set up, there's just a menu item that says uh, pair, you know, pair wallet. Um, so what we did was we did all the legwork ourselves to figure out the different configuration settings, the different export formats, all the different uh, formats and configs that every single popular Bitcoin wallet needs that's compatible with Passport. So that you literally, like if you want to use Passport with Blue Wallet, you just choose Blue Wallet from the menu. If you want to use Sparrow, huh. you just choose Sparrow, right? There's no, and then it asks you, do you want to do QR? You know, do you want to do multi-sig or single-sig? And then it just spits out the exactly correct stuff over QR code. What I've seen from the other wallets that kind of take this approach of, um, you know, being compatible with the, like the different popular software wallets and not having their own client software is they'll typically make the user like choose the right backend formats for everything. Um, there's different different ways to export the data, like text files, JSON files. Uh, there's, there's, it's, unfortunately, it's kind of a mess right now and there's no standards. I yeah. think we're going to be converging on some standards, but it's, it's frankly a mess. And so we don't want our users to have to like go look up on like the blue wallet support documentation to try to figure out what format they need, which it so happens we use the Electrum format to send the data to blue wallet. Like the users don't want to, to know that the users just want to be like, I'm just going to click blue wallet and it's just going to work. We were able to get that done. Um, like I said, it was a total pain, but now that we have it, it's really easy to add a new wallet or make changes to an existing wallet. And it just makes the user experience like so, so nice and like foolproof. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a big disconnect between technically compatible and easily usable in the right. cryptocurrency space. Cause there's a lot of times where you get told that something is technically compatible, but actually using it, like you said, is going to require you learning deeply about the specific way that the wallet works, learning about maybe derivation paths or the specifics <laughs> of how you need to set it up and all these different things, all these moving pieces. And yes, it technically works, but you're going to have to do a ton of legwork to figure that out. Uh, so I think that's, it's fascinating that y'all have really done that legwork for the user. And when you say something's compatible, you're doing everything you can to simplify that process for the user, um, which I'm sure is a huge step forward. Mm -hmm, I, definitely. I'm wishing more and more as we talk through this, that I actually had a passport that I had <laughs> used before coming onto this. So <laughs> I have to get okay, this well, and we'll have to do a round two and I can uh, kind of go over some of my specific thoughts and 
and uh, issues or, or just kind of um, feedback on on using it because uh, I'm I'm really curious the more and more I hear about it now. Um, but yeah, I think those are sounds great. Some really fascinating features. QR codes, I think, are something too that is, I guess, starting to get a little bit more of adoption. Mm-hmm. But it's such a such a great way to transfer information without uh, connecting devices. It's a, it's a great way to maintain an air gap um, without having to to break that to be able to to transfer that data. So I'm curious to explore that more as well. Um, yeah, it's also you, you, great, by the way, on um, on iOS because iOS places <laughs> insane restrictions uh, yeah, yeah. on. Let's say NFC on on makes it difficult to do Bluetooth easily, um, and so just having QR codes means that you could be universally compatible cross platform from day one without any kind of special uh, integrations from the developers. And I think a lot of people think about QR codes in terms of like the security or the convenience or anything like that, and they don't think about it in terms of like cross platform compatibility. But that's a huge consideration. Yeah, yeah, I definitely hadn't thought about that. That it allows you to, to do things on platforms where you don't have access to any of the other features. Basically, mm-hmm. everything's gonna have a screen and let you display information on the screen. So, exactly, you do that just yeah. about anywhere. Um, so you touched a little bit earlier on on some of the different competitors or alternatives that are out there. Um, but any more thoughts on on just kind of uh, how Passport differentiates itself from them? Yeah, I think. I think, you know, our main competitors are the other hardware wallets, right? So it's pretty straightforward. I think, you know, you typically have in Bitcoin world, Ledger, Trezor, Cold Card. And there's also some cool DIY projects, you know, like uh, Seed Signer or Spectre DIY. Mm -hmm. I think just Passport offers the best balance between like the design. When I say design, I don't just mean aesthetics. I mean like the, you know, usability. Um, so the design, like the user experience, um, the performance in terms of it being extremely fast and responsive and you know reliable, then also just the open source aspect to it. Um, I haven't really seen that exact combination uh, from the other products. Now, the other products have their own pros and cons, right? And uh, I think a lot of it depends on the user. But if you're looking for something that really strikes that balance between the design, the UX, the open source, um, and the performance, I think Passport is probably a really good bet. Uh, the open source thing is especially important to us. And we're proudly not just open source software, but open source hardware. And we actually use CERN's open hardware license to OHL, which is really cool. It's specifically designed for hardware. And we're using copy left licensing. So we're using GPL, you know, uh, as the software, and then specifically CERN's OHL-S on the hardware, which is like their, essentially their GPL for hardware equivalent. And so there's only a couple projects that actually are open source hardware, you know, right now. Uh, yeah. There's Trezor, which has done a really good job, but they're lacking that secure element. So they don't have the same security characteristics that we do. I think I think we definitely have uh, protection against like physical security, which Trezor does not. Uh, and then I, there's another one. There's, um, you know, Bitbox uh, is also open source hardware, which which got got to give them the credit for. I think they're a lot more difficult to use, at least for me personally. Um, so yeah, I think I think we strike like a, a unique uh, unique balance, especially for uh, beginner users. 
Yeah, I'm glad you touched on the the open source software and hardware piece because the open source hardware space is pretty pretty small. I mean, even outside of cryptocurrency, <laughs> open source hardware is very much yeah. a, kind of a, a niche and, and a cutting edge thing. Um, so to to focus on that when you obviously didn't have to, but you you decided to focus on making sure that that not only was the software open source, but the hardware was. Uh, I think brings a lot of value there and it, it brings a lot of uh, hopefully longevity to the project as well because even if something happened to um, mm-hmm. to foundation and you know, went under something obviously not something I want to see happen mm-hmm. but if that happened the the hardware is still open source people would con- could continue to maintain it they could even someone else could pick it up and and create new ones based on that there's a lot of flexibility mm-hmm. there and obviously the the other key piece is it allows users visibility most people probably aren't going to be able to inspect the open source hardware, uh, mm-hmm. I don't even know if you call it code, but inspect the open source hardware, hardware uh, schematics and, and understand what's going on, but it does allow some more visibility and, and removes a little bit more of the trust that you have to have in the, the hardware that you're using when it's not something that's completely closed source and, and locked down and, and kind of off limits to the to the user, which is, is super important and something that I, I hope to see more and more of as we go because open source software is vital and we've seen a good mm-hmm. push there recently. Uh, but open source hardware has been something that's been really lacking. Um, but definitely hopeful that that'll that space will continue to grow. Um, and thankful that y'all have kind of pioneered in that area and uh, joined a couple other manufacturers. But it mm-hmm. definitely is pretty rare. Yeah, there's so many reasons, I and mean, you mentioned a lot of the great reasons to to be open source hardware. I, I think like for like if you're going to have this open source uh, software like Bitcoin. It just feels really weird if it's running on like a closed hardware foundation. So there's that whole element of it where it's like open source software. If you care that much about the open software, the open protocols and so on, like you want to run that on open source hardware. Then there's another aspect of obviously the transparency, transparency, the auditability, but like how I mentioned ownership is a part of sovereignty. If you're buying a passport Mm. from us, you have the right to modify it. You know, you actually go on our GitHub and, get the designs, you know, all, all the schematics and the CAD files and all the firmware files and everything like that, you can do whatever you want with it. And that's like really powerful, right? Because almost everything that we use today from a hardware perspective, from a software perspective, but especially from a hardware perspective prevents you from doing that. I mean, look what Apple has done in terms of reverse engineering, right to repair, all that kind of stuff. It's just a total mess. And I'm losing we're you, not, Zach. you know, we're not scared of the open... Okay. Sorry, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Sorry, I lost about the last, I think, 15 or 20 seconds. Um, You were talking about how you allow users. Can you hear me? I'll piece it together if you just want to start back with how open source hardware allows you to to take control of your hardware. Yeah, by the way, you, you just cut out for a minute too, so I don't know, and I was checking my internet. It might be on your end, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it could be on my end, but uh, <laughs> hopefully the server got it, basically. Um, yeah. But you can just piece it together. Uh, you can hear me now, though? I can hear you fine now, yeah. No okay, cool. Right now. Yeah, so what I was saying was that um, I think you know, open source hardware gives users that ownership over what they're buying. And I think that's the right thing to do. I don't think you should sell someone a device and then 
they're not allowed to do anything with it. They're not allowed to fix it. They're not allowed to modify it. I think that's ridiculous. And so that's really important. And then I think a lot of companies are afraid of open source hardware uh, because they're afraid they're going to get copied, you know? Um, But I think that a, it's really easy to copy like hardware anyway. It's, it's not that difficult. You can just look at the designs and you could copy it. So it's not that big of a deal. Um, like for example, what's the difference between like a Logitech, you know, computer mouse and a and a Razer computer mouse? Like they're, I'm sure they patented the hell out of everything, but like they both probably work pretty much the same way. Um, and and like the way we we look at it is that we're just going to keep coming out with new iterations of products. So like you're welcome to like use our designs, you're welcome to copy our stuff, but by the time you do, we'll already be on like the next iteration. And so it gives us an incentive to actually be fast and to be constantly improving and to not be stagnant. So while some companies might see that as like a huge disadvantage and like a risk point to their business, we look at it as like a motivation to keep improving as fast as possible. And I think there's less risk of having kind of copying issues and cloning issues with hardware because there's so much more that goes into actually producing the hardware. Um, so mm-hmm. I think there's definitely a lot less risk of that in the open source hardware space, but um, that is an interesting angle to to hear how it's motivation to to build and, and improve and iterate quickly because you know that a competitor could step up and, and use the schematics and the, the information that you're you're making public and, and try to build something on top of it. But um, obviously you have the user base, you have the the feedback from those users that you're using to iterate on and and those things are, are super important and will help you kind of keep an edge even though you've chosen to expose some of the information that many companies would keep very closely held as intellectual property. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're also obviously showing that you're, you're in it for the long haul and that you, you're in it for the, the good of users and the good of the space, which is, yeah, is super definitely. important. And I think should give people a, a little bit more um, comfortability with, with looking into foundation and using a passport wallet and, and that kind of thing. Appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. So there is one kind of pressing issue that has come into effect in the hardware wallet space, and that is that the connection between someone buying a hardware wallet and mm. actually giving up the information about where they are, shipping info, user uh, full name, like credit card information, all that kind of stuff, hopefully, obviously, Bitcoin address in this um, in this instance, but that information kind of has to be collected in some way for you to ship a physical device to a user. Um, so what kind of uh, concerns... Uh, do you or, or what kind of way do you approach keeping that information secure or collecting as little information as possible? Or kind of what's your your mindset around how you protect users from issues around their data being leaked or or hacked uh, about them having a hardware wallet? Yeah, this is this is a tough one <laughs> to be honest, right? Um, it could have been like there was a great opportunity for everyone to take a jab at Ledger when they had their big breach in the last you know year or two. Um, but I actually think it's harder to secure customer data than it is to make a hardware wallet. <laughs> it's like a completely different set of challenges. So I'll tell you what we do. One is that we have our own online store that's a WordPress WooCommerce setup, uh, which means that we're not using something like Shopify. I know Ledger was using Shopify for at least some component of their store, and I think that was one of, one of their vulnerabilities. And so like... First thing is don't don't have a system like Shopify or 
um, I don't know, maybe Square or something like that, where like an employee can just literally check the records. Like that doesn't make any sense, you know, where yeah. like an employee at Shopify could just go into your store and download the list. Like okay. that, that just don't don't set yourself up for that, right? So that's kind of one big thing. So use something like WooCommerce or some other kind of e-commerce solution that is um, self-hosted. Um, another thing is, you know, we do have to collect like basic info, like your email, uh, your shipping info, um, the items you ordered. And um, if you choose to pay with credit card, then that information is being stored with Stripe, which is the credit card processor we use. We're also collecting billing address. So what we do right now is we automatically purge all that data uh, within typically 30 days, though a few items that's 60 days after we ship to you. Okay. So we keep the data in our self-hosted you know, um, WooCommerce store, but then once we ship it, it queues up an automatic deletion process. Now we are downloading an archive of that data on a regular basis, which we do need for like sales tax, you know, and other things like that. Um, but that is being stored only by two of the founders that completely offline and encrypted. Um, we have the luxury of being able to do this because like we don't offer any kind of services right now. If we do start to offer like services in the future where you'd have where you would con- consider paying something on like a recurring basis, it gets even harder, right? Because then we actually have to store some of that information online always. And like, so we're kind of like in a good place right now where we're at least for now, when we're just selling a device, we can purge the data completely from the off from the online system and download it. Um, one couple cool things. One is that we're building our own internal tool um, to actually allow us to have like a fully encrypted data store for the company with like access controls that's self-hosted. Uh, we're building that for ourselves internally just so that we can figure out this issue and make it even better where like an employee wouldn't be able to access the data without like special permission, for example, or like you would need two founders to click like a button or like even approve something from like their passport, you know, in order to access it. So we are working on that internally to improve because we do plan on having services and stuff in the future that would require that we retain some amount of data, you know, online. Um, then another cool thing is that because we're using WordPress and WooCommerce, we actually run our own um, our own self-hosted Matomo web analytics as part of that instance. Mm-hmm. And we obfuscate the last three digits of the IP address. And so we don't know the exact IP address or exact location of any of our customers, which I think is really cool. We have no way of associating right now IP with a specific customer. Um, and then finally, uh, we use BTC Pay on the Bitcoin side, so we're self-hosting that. And that means that if you do want to use like a pseudonymous email address and you do want to use a shipping address to like a mailbox or like ship it to your place of work, you know, something that doesn't have your home address, and you do choose to pay in Bitcoin, we really don't know much about you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's great. And I think it's really important. I think if you're in the space and you're accepting Bitcoin, you should not be using like a third-party Bitcoin payment processor, you should be hosting your own BTC Pay server. So those are just a few things we do, and we're, we're constantly striving to um, to improve that, and it's it's really top of mind for us. Yeah, that's a, a very detailed and, and well-thought-out approach. Um, I think you, especially at Nintendo, hit the nail on the head there that if, if someone who's running a, a service like this, selling like hardware wallets or 
something Bitcoin related, but isn't self-hosting the specific components that go along with that, like a BTC pay server and all that. I think that should be a red flag because one of the beautiful <laughs> things about Bitcoin yeah. and about cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin is that we are, we're able to cut out the middleman. We're able to do transactions directly peer to peer without having to rely on some other service or some credit card processor or anything like that. So just the simple fact of actually self-hosting the pieces of the checkout process and Keeping that data mm-hmm. in-house obviously helps you not having to worry as much about um, third-party hacks causing issues for you or dependency hacks, that kind of thing that are causing yep. problems for you externally. Um, and then obviously it seems like <laughs> really, I think, taking a very concerted approach to um, users' privacy, but also just offering those those options of uh, obviously you're obfuscating the IP address of the user and then allowing mm-hmm. people to pay in Bitcoin. And, and obviously... Right. Um, there's a lot of ways that you can help your privacy on Bitcoin. So hopefully people are, are doing that, not just sending directly from like a, a KYC exchange or something, but mm-hmm. um, it definitely is a, a very freeing piece of that and should be a, a core piece of that. Uh, so it's oh, good to hear I'll that. Tell you the, that's very much at a focus there. Yeah. The, the, the biggest problem that I'll be completely honest and upfront about that every company mm-hmm. is facing the shipping physical things is the shipping <laughs> because, and I don't just necessarily mean like the obviously shipping address, you know, if that's the privacy aspect there, but I mean yeah. that you need to use a service to buy like the UPS labels or whatever. And even if you don't use a service, if you're using like the UPS API or whatever mail carrier, you know, if you're using their API directly, like they're retaining that data. I am pretty sure that like, if you, break into a UPS store and like open up whatever computer was left unlocked. (laughs) You probably type in like the account number or something for that shipper and pull up list of all their shipments and packages. Obviously they don't, they don't retain that data indefinitely, but like if you're shipping internationally, those customs forms are actually uploaded with that. And so all of a sudden they have like name number of items they ordered, the value, the address. It's really scary. And like, we c- we're doing as much as we can, like what's in our control, but I want to be upfront, right? That when you're shipping something physical, there are these trade-offs and like, you know, your listeners should be aware that no matter what we're doing on our end, there's still those basic elements of like the thing has to get to you, you know? And so definitely encourage the use of like, um, like a mailbox or PO box or forwarding service or shipping it to like a, you know, your place of work or a friend or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a and that's a tricky thing that you just can't really work around at the moment. So, hopefully, users take the steps that they can. But even then, like a PO box that's clearly linked to your personal ID, and there are not great ways right now to to receive Mm -hmm. something physically without there being a a relatively clear trail to wherever it's sent. Uh, But doing what you can can minimize that. Yeah, and if there was, you'd be making the trade-off between like the speed and the and the privacy, right? Because you're not going to get it in two days if it's bouncing between like you know three different places, and you're going to be paying yeah. more for shipping. And so, you know, there's always those trade-offs, and I just I like being honest about it. I don't want to like pretend like we have it all figured out, and then like UPS has a breach, you know, <laughs> and then people are like, "How the hell did my information get leaked out?" It's like we're we're doing everything we can, with, like the levers that we have, and just trying to make it you know always always better. When are we going to get the foundation shipping service? Uh, just <laughs> handle it not, end to end. Not going to do that for <laughs> sure. But it would be something cool for someone to look at, you know, as a potential startup, because there's all these like virtual mailboxes where they're like forward it to you. 
but is that really adding, you know, a lot of protection? It's, it's a layer, you know, which is cool, but um, I don't know. Hope either. Hopefully there'll be a solution for this at some point or the way I think about it too, with like Bitcoin, I mean, everyone's going to be using Bitcoin, I think within the decade. So maybe if you're buying a hardware wallet in 10 years, like who cares? You know? <laughs> um, but I, I don't know. I, I do think the the privacy aspect is really important and it's still an open problem. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. It's a, it's a tricky one to solve. Um, so just a couple more questions for you, man. Uh, sure. It's been a great discussion so far, but I did want to yeah. just touch on how, how is foundation funded or made sustainable? I mean, obviously you're, you're a business, so you're selling hardware yep. wallets to people. Um, is there any kind of VC funding that's also a part of that or uh, customer funding or donations and anything like that, that, that helps to, to drive foundation forward? Yeah. So we are uh, VC funded is the short answer. Um, we did a pre-seed round when we first launched and we did a, uh, seed round, uh, in this past June of 2021, um, led by Bolt, who's a pretty awesome early stage hardware investor, uh, been immensely helpful working with them. Um, and so that, that's how we're funded. Um, obviously we're selling products. We are making money We're we're generating revenue. And so we will get to the point, uh, where we are cash flow positive and, you know, we'll make the decision to no longer, pursue venture funding, but we, we do expect to be around for a long time. And, you know, for, for right now we are, um, dependent on the venture capital in order to keep kind of growing the team size and putting out, uh, you know, all these products at a pretty rapid pace. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't see anything wrong with that. Obviously it's, it doesn't seem like it's compromising the, the ethos or the fundamentals that you're focused on. And it's, it's important that there is that initial funding to get these things off the ground. Um, so I'm always glad when, when companies like like yours, like, like Foundation, can can find those people who invest early yeah. and help you to build out something that's sustainable, because sustainability in the the FOSS space is very very tricky, and obviously you're also a hardware business on top of that. So there's a lot of difficulty there. So I'm glad you found good people to to partner with there that have been helpful for you. Um, and I think that's very yeah. important. I think it's funny. It's it's easier to get that funding almost for a FOSS, or I should say, I don't know. I never say fosh, <laughs> but like <laughs> if you're, if you're a free open source hardware project, I think it's easier to get funding because you're selling something physical, right? I know mm-hmm. in free open source software, it's, you know, I know there's a lot of different types of business models, but it can be more complicated. I mean, there's obviously great models that work really well, like, like whether it's like a red hat model where you can, you can point to all these, you know, open source software companies with big exits or big amounts of funding, but at least in hardware, it's like, we're making something and we're, we're selling it <laughs> and it's yeah. like, we have to manufacture it and we have to ship it. And so it does create like a pretty no brainer business model, which is easy to wrap your head around for investors. Other funny anecdote, which I think you'd appreciate is that we actually had to get bolt to change, to, to strike a clause from the standard um, VC like documents that you would sign for like a seed round. There's mm-hmm. like this um, venture capital association. They have like a standard document package, you know, um, that's pretty much used like as the template for all these deals. And there's one clause in there that says something like no GPL software <laughs> because because <laughs> like, you know, Google won't acquire you if you have GPL software. <laughs> Interesting. And this is this is not a joke. There's a lot of companies like you can MIT license software. Fine. Right. But like GPL where it's copy left. That yeah. presents an enormous problem. So one, it's it's kind of funny. <laughs> Two is it's kind of great because it means that like you're not going to get ripped off by someone like Google 
because they can't rip it off because they'd have to open source anything it touches if you're using a copy left license, you know, like GPL. And three, our, you know, our investors were happy to scrap that right away as soon as we pointed that out. So it was not anything that was contentious. We were obviously super upfront about our values and our strategy and everything and our emphasis on open source from the beginning. And so there were no surprises there when we were going through like the actual legal, you know, set of things. I've never even thought of the effect that open source licenses would have on a like a VC funding oh, deal yeah. or something like that. That's a, <laughs> I, a fascinating piece of things that hadn't even crossed my mind before. It's a fun anecdote for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Glad you all got that. Uh, y'all y'all found that in all of the the red tape there. I'm sure there, were, there was a ton to go through, but glad y'all found that Definitely. and got that struck out. So, last question for you, Zach, before we close out, uh, is just really how can listeners jump in and help to support what you're doing with Foundation? I think the easiest way is to, uh, you know, to to consider purchasing a passport on our website. I think that's the that's the best and, and easiest way to support us. Like I mentioned, we have this batch two coming up. Um, we're going to be releasing a lot of details over the next month or so. We're going to have an updated website with details of the the you know updated uh, design. Um, we'll have a you know we already have that lower price, like I mentioned, at one ninety nine right now for pre orders. And we will be giving some cool details of the mobile app that we're going to be shipping alongside uh, Passport. And so um, you can you know, check out our website at foundationdevices.com. And of course, give us a follow on Twitter. You know, We're always posting updates and blog posts and that kind of thing. And so uh, if you're not thinking about purchasing something, you know, keep, keep up to date right, with what we're doing. And maybe you'll want to uh, in the future. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for diving into that. Uh, I'm going to be looking into pre-ordering one from that next batch and excited to see the the updates that, that come out on the, the hardware finance you've made and you talked about today and, and that mobile wallet too. Um, but just want to close out by just saying thank you for, for your commitment to, to FOSS, to building open source hardware, um, to, to caring deeply about user privacy and, and customer privacy for, for y'all selling hardware. And I'm uh, just glad to see people in the space like yourself that are, are very committed to that and are, are not wavering from that commitment because it's it's so important to the the longevity of Bitcoin and the Bitcoin space that uh, people continue to carry on that, that real cypherpunk ethos um, that, that kicked all of this off. So great to see that. And, and I learned a ton today uh, and I'm going to be, have to do a ton of research and, <laughs> and learn some more on how this, this thing works. But I, I've, I've really gotten a ton of great details from you. So I'm excited for, for listeners to hear this as well. Thanks, Seth. Uh, love the podcast. Love what you're doing. It was a uh, pleasure to be here. Have a good night, Zach. You too. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Opt Out. If you did, please take a moment and subscribe to the podcast, or if you're already subscribed, share it with one friend or family member this week. As always, you can check out the link to the guest content and contact info, as well as links to all of the tools we discussed in today's episode. Now get out there and opt out this week.